Hi, I'm Lex Marinos, and... Hello, I'm Patricia Ramflett. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week we chat with leading health, lifestyle, finance and fitness experts about how to get the most out of life as we age. Plus we talk with well-known and not-so-well-known Australians of all generations about the issues that affect them. So tune in and... Get connected. connected. Stay connected. Well, Patricia, we're back for another season, another oh. chock-a-block season of Baby Boomer's Guide. Oh, I've missed you. I've missed you, I have to say. I've missed you too. Oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> and we have a terrific season in store, don't we? It's huge. I don't know how we've managed to do all of this. And on our very, very first program this season, mm-hmm. we've got a terrific man and I know that the whole of Australia respects and likes him. He's Dr. Norman Swan. He's going to do the theme, So You Think You Know What's Good For You, because he's written a book called that. Yes, and I have. Yeah. And it's all about, it's all medical in a way that I can understand it. Yeah, me too. So it's not, it's just plain speak, very, well, it's very conversational, the book, when you read it, and you'll love it and gain so much from it. And Patricia, I know you'll be interested in this. Jeff's Cafe. Uh, look, the good news is that it's been sanitised and it's <gasps> open really? for business. It's, it's got a clean bill of health. Yes, yep. yes, the police have been through it. Well, There's nothing. The health <laughs> officials have been through it. Every <laughs> single part of it's been sanitised. Well, with COVID, you can't be too sure. And they'll discuss the theme. Mm. Oh, and with Jeff, you can't be too sure. But listen, Patricia, yes. Patricia, the guests at Jeff's Cafe are Jolan, David and Susan. I know. they. So where would you find a trio like that other than a Jeff's Cafe? That's a great mixture. Intergenerational is our theme, um, this, this program. Well, all of our programs from now on, we won't just have older people. We'll have middle-aged and we'll have young people. So it's nice to get their take. Mm-hmm. Um, NADOC week. What a great week and our very special guest. What a celebration. Ah, Nostalgia Town. He'll take us there is one of the most wonderful First Nations friends of ours, Gary Foley. Oh, Gary, what a marvellous fellow he is. Mm. And um, Gaz and I go back a little way, back to when, oh, well, I don't know how many years, but um, it's always great to catch up with him. He's always entertaining, he's always provocative, and he's always very thoughtful. So uh, after Nostalgia Town... We're going to talk about divorce Mm -hmm. this week with Alice Mantle, and it's often not the nicest topic and it's not the nicest time in people's lives, but Alice will make things very understandable and uh, I look forward to that. Well, whichever way you look at it, Patricia, you know, uh, whatever the rights and wrongs are, it always costs money. It sure does. In Stepping Out, you know, Devonport, Tasmania has to be one of the most beautiful places in the world. I mean, how gorgeous is Tasmania? Oh, is it ever? Who have we got? Brian Shearston's going to take us to Devonport. Brian uh, uh, has a long history in community radio down in um, Tasmania, mm. and we'll be talking to him. Look forward to it. It's a lot to get into one program, isn't it? Oh, my word, Lex. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. With me, Lex Marinos, and you... I'm Patricia Amflett. And our guest, trained in paediatrics, Dr Norman Swan, was one of the first medically qualified journalists in Australia, with a broadcast career spanning more than 30 years. He currently hosts Radio National's The Health Report and co-hosts CoronaCast. 
He also reports on 7.30 as guest reporter on Four Corners, appears on the drum and occasional host of Radio National Breakfast. In addition to being an active journalist and health broadcaster, Dr Swan has a deep strategic knowledge of the Australian healthcare system and is committed to evidence-based approaches to help young people, which is why he sits on the board of the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth. He's also the co-founder of Tonic Media Network, a health channel that plays in GPs' waiting rooms. He's also the author of So You Think You Know What's Good For You, just recently published, and it's a, a lifetime's work um, on ABC Radio and TV and uh, general practice and paediatrics. And Norman, welcome to Baby Boomer's Guide. Thanks, Lex. Thanks, Patricia. Norman, to start off with the book, um, well, the first thing I want to say is how fantastic the the job you've done over the last couple of years has been on CoronaCast and just keeping us up to date with what's happening with the coronavirus and most particularly your ability to communicate in a way that everyday speech that people understand, which is contrary to what most medicine is like. Medicine has a reputation for being arcane and esoteric and Eiffel Tower and, uh, and you know, generally you come away from the doctors in the old days thinking, my God, what, what does all that mean? I don't know what, what's going wrong with me. I can't understand what was said. And it, it felt like, you know, information was only, was only a drip feed, whereas you've turned that on its head. You're a doctor who communicates to the person in the street. Was that an intentional career path for you? Oh, my career path has taken various turns through the years, although it's been fairly stable for the last few years. Um, you know, I originally wanted to be an actor, but the uh, so but communication, communicating and telling stories is what I enjoy doing. And when I started the health report, which was actually a few years after I joined the ABC, um, the I was. Um, I, I did a lot of other things at the ABC before I, I started the health report. But really the, the reason I started it was that I saw that the community didn't have any window into exactly what you said a moment ago, which is the arcane knowledge of medicine. And as a result, often got inferior care, not because the doctor wanted to give inferior care, but because there was this miscommunication and the, People didn't know what the right questions to ask and where to go and who to trust. So when I started the health report, the explicit aim was to give people the knowledge that hitherto had been guarded jealously by the medical profession. And um, and in the early days, that was borne out. That the, the angriest calls I would get from doctors would not be because I got something wrong, but because somebody had come into their surgery asking questions which they didn't expect. I've read your book and I'm still reading it, going back over pages. It's just a cracker of a read and I, I think everyone should read it. Um, I'm well aware, as I guess most people are, certainly baby boomers plus, but younger people too, of the the nose, you know, the you know, little s's, smoking, salt, sugar. And uh, we're kind of brainwashed with those being not not very good for us, particularly in, in larger amounts. And you alerted me to uh, the reason why on the rare occasion, I love cooking, but on the rare occasion I go out for dinner, I think, oh, it's so tasty. And I realise it's got much more salt in it than I'm prepared to put in. So that's really ringing true with many, many people. Um, but what's great about your book is that it's positively tells us what we should be eating 
And it's easy to eat well. It's just so easy. The, the fish, the white, white goods, the, the white meat, um, vegetables. I mean, how beautiful are our vegetables in Australia? So salads, do you think older people are, are eating better? The evidence is that as you get older, you eat a less diverse diet, particularly when you live alone. Mm. And that has profound effects on your body. And the, uh, and what happens when you eat a less diet, you know, you just can't be bothered. Oh, just go out and I'll, I'll grill a steak, mm. you know, have a bread and butter or, you know, and you may not even have a steak. You've probably got low protein intake. Uh, you just have a sandwich. Um, because you can't be bothered. And the less diverse your, your diet, the less diverse, for example, your microbiome. And so those are the bugs in your bowel. And, you know, about 10 years ago, this was considered fringe, but really now it's mainstream. And when you eat a less diverse diet, you, your microbiome goes into a pro-aging state. Um, and so, just at the point in your life where you don't want to be speeding up aging, your very diet is speeding up aging. Mm. And so it's not, so you're right. I, I try not to talk about this. You know, a lot of health books wag their finger at you and tell you what you're not, not to do. And this one tells you what to do. And the, and it's really important that you eat a very diverse diet with plenty of protein. And, and what, and what I talk about here, talking about getting older is uh, the, the Greek paradox. So one of it's a couple of paradoxes in the book, and one of the paradox, one of the titles of one of the chapters is "Forget the French, the paradox is Greek." Now we all know the French paradox: you eat smoked gluten, eat twice long, and you live forever. It's not quite true, by the way. But um, the second longest-lived people in the world are actually Greek Australians, best studied in Melbourne, and they're Greek Australians, older Greek Australians who t- tend to be first-generation migrants. To some extent, their children as well. And you say to people, and this comes to your, your, your question, your, your thing about what, what you were referring to really there, Patricia, were the components of the Mediterranean diet. So people say, oh, they're living long because they're eating a Mediterranean diet. They're eating lots of veggies. They're not eating much red meat. They're eating a lot of fish, which is true. But that's only part of the reason why Greek Australians live longer than non-Greek Australians. So I'm playing to the choir here with Lex. Yes, indeed. I'm, little, I'm loving this. So there are lots of features of uh, older Greek Australians, and Lex will pick me up if I'm wrong here. So one is that it's not enough to talk about the components of the Mediterranean diet. So with all due respect, what you just did there, Patricia, was the components. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what turns out to be as important or necessary on top is cuisine. So it's, it's best way to describe it is the, the Mediterranean dietary pattern. So it's how you cook is really important. So you've got this raw food fad at the moment. Now it's much better eating raw food than processed food, no question. But if you, let's take a tomato for example. If you eat a raw tomato, it's good for you. If you chop a raw tomato, it's better for you. And I'll explain why in a minute. And if you chop a raw tomato and pour extra virgin olive oil, it's even better. But the best way is actually to chop a tomato and maybe a red capsicum and cook it with olive oil. And what happens then is it's a chemistry set. And let's take the – and it's stuff that you will never be able to buy in a pharmacy. 
And I've talked about pro-aging in a, mo- in, in a moment ago. This is where you get to anti-aging compounds. So you, um, so say if you take sofrito, which is the basis of a lot of Mediterranean dishes, including Greek dishes. So you've got extra virgin olive oil. Now in extra virgin olive oil are, well, what I call in the book bioactive compounds. A lot of people call them antioxidants. They're much more than, so antioxidants means that they oppose the, the rusting inside your body that's caused by oxygen. The same way as oxygen reacts with iron to cause rust, oxygen inside your body reacts with your tissues and rusts your tissues. And antioxidants help to prevent that. But the antioxidants you buy in the chemist don't work. Um, it's natural antioxidants that work. And these bioactives do much more than just prevent rusting inside the body. They help your body communicate. They make the energy in your cells work more efficiently and so on. So extra virgin olive oil, got lots of bioactives. Then you throw in onions. And onions have got compounds in them which react with the extra virgin olive oil. Then you throw in garlic. And garlic's got compounds. Then you throw in maybe even carrots. And then you throw in tomatoes. And then you throw in fresh herbs. And all those things work together to produce thousands and thousands of bioactive compounds, much more than just the individual elements of the diet. And then the other thing that uh, happens with a Mediterranean diet, uh, Mediterranean cuisine, is you cook slowly. So, yeah, we all love barbecues, and Greek Australians are no different. But, in fact, what they love more is a 10-hour lamb in the wood-fired oven. If you go to Coburg and Melbourne, you know, they've got garages with wood-fired ovens in them, and they, they, you know, and they cook lamb for 12 hours, and it's one meal a, a, a week, I should say, uh, if if that. So it's slow cooking. If you cook fast and you burn food uh, at high or at high temperature, that brown, which we all love, and it's great taste, and we love it, that that caramelization has got compounds in it called Ages, advanced glycation end products, doesn't matter what they're called, they are pro-aging compounds. Mediterranean cuisine has very few of those compounds in it. By the way, the Southeast Asian diet is very similar to the Mediterranean diet. It just tastes different and looks different, but it's got the same sort of components in it. And then what else is, going back to the Greek Australians, well, Lex would know this well. Don't get in the way of an older Greek Australian and um, you know, and, and, the, and the grocery counter because they are the world's most finicky consumers of fresh vegetables and fresh herbs, as indeed are Vietnamese people. You go out to Kabramata in Sydney and just watch you know the Vietnamese shopping for their veggies. But a lot of Greek Australians have their own backyard; they're growing their own veg. Or in, in Melbourne, they have an allotment, so they're getting exercise and they're growing. And freshness means that a lot of this has nothing to do with organic. Freshness means that you're retaining a lot of the original uh, bioactive compounds. And then when they're cooked, they're eating with friends and family. So that they're, they're not socially isolated. Mm. And then here's the other thing about early Greek Australians. Many have either never left the Greek Orthodox Church, but many have also returned to it. And if you, um, if you, if you really follow Greek Orthodoxy, there's actually a hundred fast days a year. But these are not Michael Mosley fasts. These are best described as vegan fasts, where for a day you only eat plants with a spring, with maybe some olive oil, but you don't eat dairy, fish, meat. So there's inter, not intermittent fasting, there's intermittent frugality. 
Now, you don't have to convert to Greek or the Greek Orthodox Church to do a lot of that. You know, every few days you can have a frugal day. Um, you cook slowly in the Mediterranean or Southeast Asian style. You don't burn your food. You don't have a lot of red meat. That is um, a recipe. And you and you and if you're losing your friends, try to join stuff where you actually make new friends, which gets harder and harder as you get older. But that diverse diet that has a, it, that flows on to all sorts of things physically in your body in terms of your microbiome and feedback mechanisms. So I talk a lot about that um, because. It's it's really important. Oh, Norman, you trigger such memories <laughs> for me. Um, not, you know, I remember absolutely getting impatient with my father when we would go to the grocers and we would have to inspect every single piece of fruit that was and vegetable was in the shop. It was like an expedition. He thought we're, we're crossing the outback or something. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. of course, at Easter time, as you say, breaking the fast. That was just so glorious. As kids, we couldn't wait for the, we couldn't wait for the for the, the crucifix to come out of the church. Christ is a risen, and then we'll dash off home so we could have a we could have a feed. Um, yeah. No, and I've read the book as well, and I, I have to confess, as with most books, I, I looked for the dirty bits first, and then read the other bits. Um, it's a huge compilation of of stuff. I guess you've put together over years of, of broadcasting and researching and stuff, how much do you keep current? I mean, how much do you have to keep current with what's going on? How many medical journals and stuff do you read per week? Um, I read in detail four or five probably, uh, but cast my net. Oh, no, more than that, actually, more than that, probably seven or eight um, a week. From that perspective, how's medical science going? Are we doing well? Well, let's just... Let's just stand back from that question because it's an important question. We've been living three months a year longer every year since the mid-19th century. Mm. So life expectancy keeps on going up. The question is why? What, what are the reasons for it? In the 19th century, it was um, it, it was things like better obstetric care, um, high, hygiene and antisepsis so that women didn't die in childbirth. And babies survived the first few months of life. That increased life expectancy. Then we discovered that germs cause disease. So we're much better at controlling uh, infection. We had immunization. Um, and we got much better at child care and looking after kids in the 20th century. And the reason that life expectancy is dragged down is not so much that 70-year-olds don't live to 80. It's that too many – so the life expectancy gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians is largely due not to the fact that 60-year-old Aboriginal people don't live to 80. It's more that too many Aboriginal people die in the 40s and 50s. So large numbers of years are lost through that tragedy. And so what we were good at in the 20th century through uh, various means was children, young people living longer. But the one statistic that didn't change from about 1890 to 1950 was your life expectancy at 50. So if you were 50 years old in 1890, you were just as likely to reach 70 or 80 as you were in 1950, because once you'd survived that, you got there. Now, what's happened since the Second World War is our life expectancy at 50, 60, 70, and even 80 now is is extending. So the question is, why? And most of it is still due to public health. Most of it's due to um, sanitation, good housing, education. Education, not health education. Educa- the fact that we are going, you know, people are not leaving school at 14. 
they're finishing high school, they're going to university or they're going to college, um, and they're getting a, a, a advanced education. The further you go in education in your youth, the longer you live, the later you get dementia, the less heart disease and the less cancer you get as you get older. So education is really important. Um, we stopped smoking. And it's very hard to find a 50-year-old now who smokes. Only about 10% of Australians smoke on a regular basis, which is fantastic. Um, those are the main reasons. So if you look at coronary heart disease, coronary heart disease has been going down. It's actually stalled recently because of obesity. But for the last 30 years, 2% per year, fewer people have been dying of coronary heart disease. That's enormous. Um, and about 70% of that is due to public health, smoking, better eating, more exercise. And about 30% is due to modern medicine. You know, cardiologists going in and opening up your arteries, statins to reduce your cholesterol, blood pressure medications and so on. So medicine makes a difference and it's making more difference now than it used to. Um, but with cancer, for example, unfortunately, it's still pretty disappointing is that, um, for you know, essentially we've got, there's been no dramatic change. It's just that each year we get better and better and better. So women with breast cancer, the results are fantastic now. Um, in terms of women surviving. And that's that's modern medicine, that's medical research. Um, for a lot of cancers, though, unfortunately, it, it's not gone a lot better. The, the main gap in medicine is there's a lot of fantastic stuff happening in labs, and it's not being translated to the bedside. Why? Because we are crap at tran- what's called translation. We are, we've got all these findings in the lab, and we are just not making the jump. There's people who don't want to invest in it. Uh, governments are, we are terrible at giving grants in Australia. I mean, the government will say, oh, we're giving a billion dollars a year in grants. But there's only a success rate of about 15% in grants. And then you could build up, you could be a research leader and build up this fantastic research team. And there's no continuity. Mm-hmm. In four years' time, you lose your grant. And people that you've built up with a deep expertise go off to China, go off to America, uh, go off to other countries, Singapore, and use their expertise there, or indeed change career. Um, so there are all sorts of systemic problems. I think that's worth protesting about in the streets, the fact that we're slack in that in that area, not translating. Just, mm. Norman, just getting back to the diet and realising that as we get older, as you said, we're not um, eating in a diverse fashion that we should. Um, is there... Uh, and a more emphasis perhaps should be placed on the importance of breakfast. Um, is it true that, you know, an apple a day, and that crunchy apple on the front of your book makes you want to eat it, but is hmm. it true that the, uh, an, an egg a day is really the way to start or any time during the day, googie eggs? <laughs> Well, um, what is, is the egg industry supporting uh, your podcast? Um, no, not I, at all. I just love them. And, and, and I know that when I'm tired and I, you know, might have had a gig and didn't get to eat a proper dinner, I'll come home and have an egg on toast. Is that okay? Um, you've got to be careful with eggs. Um, ah. they're, they are full of saturated fat. Um, ah. So one of, the other, <coughs> one of the other good news stories in the book is what I call the dairy paradox. So saturated fat is bad for you. It's probably not quite as bad for you as people used to say, but it is bad for you, which is one of the reasons why red meat's not good for you, but there's other stuff in red meat. And there's saturated fat in eggs. <clears throat> and I think at some points, I think some 
eggs, they are, the feed is adjusted so that there's more polyunsaturated fat in it. But you've got to be careful with eggs because uh, they do increase your saturated fat. Now, dairy is a different matter. For some reason, full-fat dairy does not cause the same problems with saturated fat that other other sources are. Mm-hmm. You've got to be careful with this because saturated fat is bad, but within dairy, full-fat dairy, it doesn't seem to be as bad. If you took the saturated fat out of dairy and gave you it, it would cause heart disease. But within within dairy foods, it doesn't seem to. And it's probably this bioactive antioxidant story again. Is there stuff in dairy which counteracts the, the saturated fat? Mm-hmm. But eggs is, are kind of unadulterated. I tend to try and keep my eggs to a couple of weeks. I mean, I love eggs too. And mm. I'm always, I look at the fridge when the fridge is empty. Oh, well, there's a dozen organic eggs there. Why don't I have them? <laughs> and, I, and, and I find it impossible to make a one egg omelette. I find it impossible to make a two egg omelette, but I'm really good at three egg omelettes. Living younger, longer, um, we know what not to do and we're learning what to do. Is there anything else that you can say in a sentence that we should all, we baby boomers should all be doing? As intense exercise as you're able to do with muscle strengthening. Mm-hmm. What gets you through to a healthy old age is stressing your body in a healthy way. I mean, you've got coronary heart disease, you've got to be very careful, et cetera, et cetera. But you've got to, you've got to actually push your body to progressive exercise so that you're getting fitter and fitter. And you're combining it with muscle strengthening. What happens when you get older is a condition called sarcopenia, which means that your muscles deteriorate as you get, as you get older. You've got to actively build muscle so that you have got very strong muscles. So in moderately intense exercise, um, at 150 minutes a week, which includes muscle strengthening and you've got to progress it. So it's not enough to rejoice that I can do a two kilo weight. Next week, it's got to be a three kilo weight. Mm-hmm. Week after that, it's got to be a four kilo weight. You've got to keep on building up and constantly working at it. Uh, that, that is the anti-aging pill is, uh, moderately wow. intense exercise and being careful with your calories. So a more diverse diet, exercise, and we're on the right track. If you're just, just on the exercise thing, I know you're running out of time, but if you're on the exercise thing, if you're able to walk, look, it's great. If you can walk around the park, and you're getting off your bum and doing that, that's fantastic. But if you really want to have a benefit, if you can walk, if you can walk around the park gossiping about the kids, then it's not enough. Uh, if you can't, if you're out of breath and you can't gossip about the kids, that's when you're starting to do um, the amount of exercise in, at the intensity you need. Norman, before we go, I just want to get a final word on, on where we are vis-a-vis COVID. Um, and depending on with, when this goes to where things could have changed. But, I, I mean, in a more general sense, is COVID a reminder that we are not as smart as we think we are, that there is a constant, that we're in a constant contest with, with nature in a way? 100%. It will, always, it will always throw up challenges to us that we need to solve? 100%. So you will, pandemics are caused by human beings. The germ is the least important part of a pandemic. It's our behavior. It's how politicians uh, behave. Um, the next pandemic could come from a lab. This one didn't come from a lab. The next one could be a member of ISIS in a biology lab editing genes. Um, we are constantly vulnerable to, to this, and we tend to get beguiled by medical technology when 
Um, and you, you know, at the time that we are talking, we're seeing a second surge of Omicron that will pass, but there'll be a new variant along and vaccines are holding the line against severe disease, but, but, but only just. So it's how we behave that makes a difference. So, so we just need to be humble in the face of nature. Norman, thanks for talking to us today. We could go forever. And uh, there's so many more questions I'd like to be able to ask you, uh, particularly, should I have a second booster? Um, but we <laughs> we can't get to everything in one session. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Norman Swan. The book is So You Think You Know What's Good For You. You should check it out if you're interested in any degree about your own health. And you'll be surprised to know it's a book that you can read about medicine. It's not full of medical terms that are off-putting or you don't know what it means. It's, it's beautifully written. And um, Norman, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Norman. And now it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe, where people of different ages talk about the theme and interview of the day. We've just been listening to that interview with Dr. Norman Swan on the topic of So You Think You Know What's Good For You, which also happens to be the title of his new book, uh, and we're going to chat about it today in Jeff's Cafe. And joining us in Jeff's Cafe, we have Susan from Brighton in Queensland, who is aged somewhere between 62 and 100,000. David from Bandina, who is aged somewhere between 40 and 61, and is um, also from originally from Brighton, but in, in Old Blighty, I believe. That's correct. And we have Jolyn, who's joining us from Canberra. Jolyn is aged somewhere between 18 and 39. So we have three ages and three states and territories. It's, it's great to have you all tonight. Look, I'm going to open, Susan. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be very hard uh, to do what's good for you. What do you think? Well, I'm actually highly, it depends on your motivation and I'm highly motivated to do what's good for me because, and I joke this to my adult children, I'm terrified that they'll end up having to look after me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why I'm motivated to, um, to do what's good for me. But knowing that, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the benefits of the book, I think, is, um, the guidelines in there and the, the signposts about what to do. Yeah. I found that really good. I find myself wondering whether it wasn't something that one has to implement very early on in life. Um, uh, you know, it, it, there's a tendency as we age to start noticing things going wrong and thinking, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd done that. So you do a bit more exercise or you change your diet or whatever. Um, but really, to, if you, if you think about the people who live with a Mediterranean diet or the Greek way of making food, then they've been doing it their whole lives. I think it's reversible, though. I think a lot of um, things are reversible, and I, I don't think it's too late uh, in a lot of ways to change. You know, leopards can change their spots in terms of looking after yourself. Are you inspired, Jolyn? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think for me um, what appealed to me is, I guess, coming back to what you are saying about it being a lifestyle thing, um, just the family sitting around at a dinner table all together and, and having a connection through the meal as well and the importance of that um, really rang true um, definitely to, to my childhood mm. and the way that I grew up as well. I think one of the problems now is that we do we don't have that connectivity. We do, we, we you know, I think more often than not, and I, I'm only, I can't generalise, only speaking for myself, but we do um, tend to sit in front of the television or in front of the computer, which is probably more more my case, and uh, and eat and we we don't have that and that's what um, Norman Swan was getting at in the book that it's not just the diet it's that connectivity as well the family relationship. 
so much of what I've read about longevity involves social connection and and extended social connection. So I, I believe that there's somewhere in California, there's a Seventh Day Adventist community that has is quite rel- it's quite new in in the in this historical scheme of things, but it's actually one of the most long lived communities in the world. And the the other place I think is Sardinia, which is fairly well known. Um, and I forget the other one, but the characteristics of those, uh, enclaves is that they are very well stitched together, extended family network. Um, there's, there's a, a good intergenerational connection, which I think is critical as well. Mm. And, and I, I wonder, you know, if you focus on diet to the exclusion of those things, I mean, I know Norman Swan didn't focus exclusively on that, but there was a tendency to play up the diet and play down the other aspects. I did. You know, found myself wondering about that. John, do you think we've moved away from that um, sitting around the table, though? Oh, I really hope we haven't. I mean, I um, I grew up, my grandma did a family dinner every Monday night with um, with all of her children and all of her grandchildren, and we ate all together the same meal. And I really hope for my children to carry on that kind of a, a tradition. Um, but I think with today's busy lifestyle, there is that tendency that, you know, children eat really slowly. <laughs> so we want to give them things that they can eat on the go and they can eat in the car or they can eat while they're watching TV because we're busy doing something else. And, um, I don't, I think the pace of life maybe sometimes limits our ability to sit together as a family and enjoy a meal together. So Julian, were you at all inspired to, to tweak your lifestyle slightly in this direction by that particular piece? I mean, I've, I grew up in Perth, so I've, I've moved away from Perth, um, and, and from my family. But for me and my partner, we both really value family and we both really value mealtimes. So we do try to eat together more often than not and to sit at a table while we eat rather than, um, watching television. So I try to do that and I try to eat, I think, mindfully as well rather than, eating, doing something else, try to be really mindful about the food and spending the time to prepare food so that I'm mindful about what I'm eating as well. David, you talked about the connectivity before as well, and um, it made me think about the meaningfulness of, you know, that social engagement and our diet, putting those two together. So what what's your take on the meaning of being together in that social interaction with, with food? Acceptance. Mm-hmm. In a word, I would say, I think that one of the things that familiarity with other people, long-term familiarity with other people gives you is an acceptance at a fairly deep and profound level. So, and I'm pretty sure my personal theory would be that that removes a level of stress, a level of underlying anxiety, because you know that you're loved, Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, or at least accepted. And, you know, that I think is a profoundly um, well, it's, it's a very profound state to be in. And it's often a state I think people who are in it are probably not even aware of because they don't know what the alternative is, mm. uh, which is probably all also a good thing as well, mm. to not be too conscious of oneself and questioning of oneself, just living a life which is natural and profoundly good for you. Jolyn, can I ask a question of you? I, yeah. I, um, I've noticed in my old, old age, <laughs> my young old age, that um, I tend to look at my home now as a kind of retreat and a, a sanctuary, And but I love going out to eat with friends and family. Do, it, 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 as a younger generation, person from a younger generation, what's your, what do you do in terms of eating? Do you tend to eat out or do you invite people back home? Um, I probably have a little bit of a balance. I, you know, I think a question that I was going to pose to either of you is, um, 
around if, if you, someone has a, a diet or, or something that they're following that might preclude them from going out to restaurants because they don't mm. want to eat that type of cuisine or they're trying to avoid certain foods um, or they're unable to eat certain foods as well. And so that balance between um, diet and connection can maybe be lost a little bit. Um, do you notice that at all in terms of trying to avoid certain foods or how trying to eat more at home and eat more healthily might limit your ability to connect socially? Yeah, I, I eat anything. So, <laughs> but I, I do remember when my children were younger that, um, if they had friends come over that were fussy eaters, you know, I found it quite annoying. <laughs> <really>. <laughs> you know, and I think, well, just eat what's in front of you, please. Um, but I think as we, uh, nowadays, there is such, such diversity in the foods that we eat. We didn't have a lot of choices when we were younger either. So, um, you know, we've gone on to all these, the Mediterranean diet and the Greek diet, as uh, as Norman identified in the book. And, uh, you know, the, those options weren't available. Asian uh, sections, Indian sections in supermarkets, all these are, are, are new types of things that we didn't experience when I was younger. And I think it's wonderful. I love trying new foods. For me, um it's, I must admit, I'm, I'm one of those people he described at the beginning who tended to leave things out rather than thinking in terms of what I should be eating. So it's what I shouldn't be eating. So I, you know, sugar, you know, for example, a big no-no. Mind mm-hmm. you, I get drawn towards it and I'm, you know, a chocoholic for sure. <laughs> but uh, the idea, I know that sugar isn't good for me. I mean, too much sugar and I feel terrible. And it's it, that never used to happen when I was young. So... Uh, and the awareness of sugar being in so many things as well. Uh, you know, wine, who knew? But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's true because my son came over the other day and um, he had a, he made himself a cup of tea and he looked for the sugar and we'd run out of sugar a while ago and because neither of us have sugar, we didn't worry about it. And as I said, we tend not to, you know, to have too many people in the house. We go out more. So, you know, sugar used to be a staple. It was something that was always in in a house or a kitchen cupboard. And now we've we myself uh, as we've moved away from that. And if it's not there, we can't eat it. So well, it's pre-injected <laughs> into the meat. So you know, you probably can't get away from it. <laughs> That's true. And sauce, lots of yeah. sauces. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I thought the, the fascinating point. I was hooked on that particular discussion quite early when he started describing the the state of the tomato. You know, and a, a raw tomato. You'd think a raw tomato in its most naked form would be the best thing you could possibly eat. But the idea that you chop it and suddenly it gets better, and you mm-hmm. cook it with something else and it gets better, and it keeps on getting better for you, and then it finally leads to this biome insight, which is you know, Michael Mosley. Obviously, he mentioned uh, being. The sort of king of king of biome biomology um, is, uh, I thought, was very interesting. I think for me, the the insights around eating more frugally and and vegan fasting, um, that's something that I'm not really mm-hmm. familiar with, um, but seems to be more and more common um, to be reading about um, and and hearing about intermittent fasting and, and things like that. I get so hungry <laughs> <laughs> and hangry if I don't eat. So I tend to kind of um, snack throughout the day and, and eat um, regular meals. But um, it's something that I'd be interested to read up on more. I was going to ask you actually, Jolyn, food, what is it? Is food a pleasure for you? Is it a fuel? Is it uh, and I don't, I suppose the temptation here is to try and gender, generalize for your generation, which is kind of ridiculous. But the, I am intrigued as to whether you, 
I'll take a step back. The reason why I'm asking is when I was your age, um, I ate whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, without any real thought to what it was, might be doing to me. Health was something I just had and took for granted. So there was no real concern about the connection between food and health because that could all be dealt with at some future time. Are you very conscious of the connection between food and health or, or do you tend to think, Hey, I'll sort that out when I'm whatever, <laughs> you know? Um, I think, you know, the household that I grew up in, um, my, my dad actually cooked most of the meals, um, and health and food were kind of linked. Um, and my natural preference is to eat foods with lots of, um, or to eat vegetables and, um, and to have fruit, um, and to have a varied diet. So I, I think naturally my diet is probably more towards the healthy kind of end of things. And we really rarely had takeaway, you know, it was a treat to have Hungry Jacks or McDonald's or something like that. And I try to kind of carry that forward now in my cooking and I really love food and um, my dad and I will text each other recipes and photos of what we've cooked all the time <laughs> so definitely and I think I, I really love having friends over and, and having a dinner party and things like that or a potluck dinner where everyone brings a plate um, and we all share and that would be my preference as opposed to going out to a restaurant because I feel like you can connect more over food that you've cooked and share together rather than um, going out for that same experience. I was wondering about the the idea that as you get older, the, the habits that you have, you've built up over a lifetime, become more embedded and therefore are they more difficult to shake? I mean, Susan, you, do you find it more difficult to change your eating and, and shopping habits? And No, I, I think as I've gotten older, I've become more diverse. You know, as I said before, I, you know, I like to embrace different types of food that weren't, weren't even available when I was younger. So I think my... Um, my diet has become more diverse. And it was interesting in uh, Norman Swan's interview that he talked about people eat less divert, like, uh, likely to have less diverse diets. Um, and, and that's probably correct, but uh, it's not quite correct for me, I think. I, I, but I'm a, I think personality is that too, because I'm an adventurous type of personality and uh, intend to look for, a, you know, new experiences. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I remember my grandfather being very much a bangers and mash kind of a guy. And uh, mm. I don't think it did him any good at all. Now, what about you, John? Do you like to try new things or do you stick with the same type of diet? Um, I do like to be adventurous. And I think, again, my parents really loved MasterChef when it first started. And so, you know, dad would come home from the supermarket and say, look, we've got some purple carrots tonight or <laughs> something like that. Um, that was the latest craze at the supermarket. So I'm, um, always intrigued to try new foods and, and that's quite fun. But whether or not I then would integrate them regularly into my diet as opposed to just trying them for the fun of it and as a novel experience, I'm not too sure. I maybe need to look at diversifying a little bit more and, and building in those new foods more regularly. I think too that there, it, um, Norman identified that the colours are important and mm-hmm. I did used to work in cancer research and prostate cancer research and uh, there was a connection. Well, there was, a, you know, a, a, a strong, uh, the men with prostate cancer who'd been diagnosed were advised to look for, to eat, drink red or eat red foods and I uh, or orange and I tend to incorporate I rarely cook without turmeric, for example. So, so, so Pinot Noir rather than... You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. Go for the red. <laughs> well, this conversation has been marvellous food for thought, been very, very nourishing for us all. And I want to thank you all for joining us today on Jeff's Cafe.
Susan from Brighton in Queensland, David formerly from Brighton in the UK but now from Bundina in New South Wales and Jolan from Canberra in the ACT. Thanks very much for joining us today on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century in Jeff's Cafe. And now it's time for Nostalgia Town where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. As we stroll down Nostalgia Town this week, we have a very special guest. It's a real thrill to uh, welcome to the program Gary Foley, Professor of History at Victoria University, lifetime Aboriginal activist. Gary was born in 1950 in Grafton, northern New South Wales, of Goombanga descent, expelled from school at 15. He arrived in Sydney to begin an apprenticeship, became involved in the establishment of the first Aboriginal self-help and survival organisations, such as Redfern's Aboriginal Legal Service, Aboriginal Health Service in Melbourne, the National Black Theatre, Canberra's famous Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Later in life, Gary went back to study, completed his BA with First Class Honours in History. Between 2005 and 2008, he was a lecturer at the Education Faculty of the University of Melbourne. In 2012, he completed a PhD in history at the University of Melbourne, for which he won the prestigious Chancellor's Award for Excellence. He's worked at Victoria University since 2008, where he was appointed Professor of History in 2015. Professor Foley, welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> G'day, Gary. G'day, Patricia. Gary, let's let's start. Let's get go right back to the beginning about where, where you grew up, where you were born, what kind of life you lived in those early years. My early years, uh, between the age of about three and 13, were spent in a tiny little country town called Tenterfield in northern New South Wales, just near the Queensland border, mm. famous for other things <laughs> other than me growing up there. <laughs> other people, famous people have grown up there. and Yeah, there, there was a saddler from there, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah, but long before him, an even more important event was when Sir Henry Parks made his famous Federation speech um, in the local, well, by the time I grew up, it was called the School of Arts, but it was the local town hall. So it was sort of... It, and Tenterfield was a good place uh, to to spend those early childhood years if you were an Aboriginal kid in in rural New South Wales mm. in the 1950s. You know, um, uh, I I think that the Tenterfield uh, Picture Theatre was the only country picture theatre in northern New South Wales that I know of that wasn't segregated. Mm. Um, so, you know, Tenerfield was a good place. I have very fond memories of mm. my childhood in Tenerfield. The cultural influences, if you were between 3 and 13, you'd have had a the teenage thing. What kind of music or did you go to the, well, you went to the movies? There wasn't a lot in the way of the arts in a little tiny country town in rural New South Wales then, you know, apart from the the movies, um, you know, uh, the the American westerns were the big, big noise then. So, you know, we sent a lot of John Wayne and them sort of characters. But, you know, the biggest, biggest, uh, cultural event 
to happen every year in Tenerfield, I suppose, was when the Slim Dusty show came to town. Mm. <laughs> you know, country and western music was the go yeah. um, back then. And, you know, the arrival of the Reg Lynchy show or the Chad Morgan show, you know, these were <laughs> – I, I, I got fond memories of watching the Chad Morgan show in the same hall where – where Sir Henry Parks had made his Federation speech, mm. you know. Mm. And a li- little later on, uh, maybe, yeah, the Cold Joy show went to Tenterfield. Indeed. I might have been, I might have left town by then, I suspect. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and those Australian acts were the only things we actually mm. saw in person, you know, and so... Mm. The, you know, Chad Morgan was real big back then. In fact, he still is in yeah. many parts of Australia. The Sheik of Scrubby Creek. Yeah, what yeah. a character. I mean, mm. you know, one of the great characters of Australian showbiz. Where did you go after 13? Um, I had the misfortune of moving <laughs> to live with my, um, not the misfortune wasn't in living with my grandmother, but uh, the misfortune was moving to the town where she lived, which was, Nambucca Heads, mm. which is where I first encountered um, the segregation that was um, mm. popular then in the local picture theatre and mm. Aboriginal people were banned from a lot of places. And it was, um, you know, the interesting thing about Tenerfield, there were only about three or four Aboriginal families in Tenerfield at the time. And my father, as as good fortune would have it, uh, was the local... Uh, rugby league star in the local footy team, which is how come we were able to manage to move from the edge of town into town. And wow. it also, you know, to have your father as the local footy star um, eased what otherwise might have been certain tensions. But mm. when I moved to, to live with my grandmother, because my parents moved to Queensland, my father followed his job. And I refused to go at the age of 13. I'd, I'd experienced enough of southern Queensland travelling around with my my father when he was playing footy. To, I knew what Queensland was like. Mm. And so I wasn't going to go there. And I, I refused to go. So my parents, instead of making me go, uh, chose to send me to live with my grandmother, which was, uh, you know, a good uh, part of my education, even though I got expelled from school. Mm. But, you know, uh, the, in, the, in, the, in the Nambucca Valley, um, Aboriginal people made up, still made up about 20% of the local population. And yet in the local high school where I was, there were only four Aboriginal kids, mm. you know. And that, I say to my students, is an illustration of the extent to which Aboriginal people still, halfway through the 20th century, were being denied meaningful educational opportunity. And even I ended up being denied mine by being kicked out of school um, mm. when I was 16. And that had a terrible influence on me, you know. It turned me against education for 30 years. It took another 30 years before I... I um, <laughs> after being insulted by an <laughs> academic at Melbourne Uni and it was suggested to me that I was somehow a lesser person because I didn't have this magic bit of paper that this university gave, I, instead of getting angry, I took up the challenge. I said, all right, I'll 
come and get you a little Mickey Mouse bit of paper. It mustn't be too difficult. You all got one. <laughs> Gary, when when I knew you were coming on the show, I you know I reflected and I realised it's fifty years since we first met. By which time you were so the early nineteen seventies, you and Uncle Bob Mazer and others were doing basically black at Nimrod Theatre in Sydney, and I was so impressed by your fire and your passion <laughs> and your your sense of your justifiable outrage at the status quo. When did what so was school and being expelled, was that the source of your activism? I mean, when I got kicked out of school, I looked around and thought to myself, I really don't want to be here <laughs> and back in those days you two might remember uh, in the nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixty before television, the go was radio and when you lived in Tenterfield and in little some of these little country towns you had to wait till night time to be able to pick up some of the Sydney radio stations, <laughs> which is, you know, where I used to, ironically, I used to love the thinner record spinner on 2UE, a certain John Laws. <laughs> That's what I called him then, you know, remember he was tall and lanky. Uh, and uh, Tony McLaren on 2UW, I still, uh, yeah, I still remember yeah. some of these uh Characters, and so I decided I wanted to go to Sydney, and that's what I did. Yeah. And and when did the activism start? Well, as soon as the coppers give me a good kick and to welcome me to Sydney, I mean, you know, Hmm. it was almost uh, uh, a standard uh, welcoming that young Aboriginal, especially smart-ass young Aboriginal kids like me from the bush, you'd arrive in Sydney. And within the first two weeks, you would have got your first bashing from the Redfin coppers. I mean, um, it was police brutality became the issue, the big issue, and 50, uh, well, 52, 53 years ago, um, that fired me up and fired up a lot of the other fellow young mm. Aboriginal people like me, most mm-hmm. of whom had arrived from various parts of New South Wales. We were all, and it was our generation who, uh, you know, uh, took a, decided to take a, a bit more uh, conf- confrontational approach to some mm-hmm. of the problems that uh, confronted us. And the first and foremost problem was police brutality. Mm-hmm. The 21 Division was sent in against us in, in Redfern, uh, and the 21 Division is famous for producing such New South Wales luminaries as Roger Rogerson, G'day, Roger. <laughs> or oh, Dick Dickerson, as I recall, somebody once played. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> of course. That's a reference to a, a movie that uh, Gary and I were in called Pandemonium, which, Gary, you'll be pleased to know. I saw Hayden Keenan about a year ago on the, on the Central Railway. He was off to a thing. It's become a cult classic. <laughs> well, like a couple of his films, you know, Going Down is another... Um, you know, I mean, I always reckon that uh, Richard Lowenstein would have knocked off the script of going down to produce Dogs in Space. Yeah. I knew that what Richard wrote was true because I lived in that house, mm. which is why I'm in the film. Tell me, Gary, when you used to get clobbered by the wallopers in those days, did you have to go to court and did were there people like Pat O'Shane around who might have no, no, no. helped you? No. This is before there were. I mean, there were no Aboriginal lawyers at that moment wow. in history, and um, so we looked 
to other um, what we considered similar situations in other parts of the world where people were confronted with the same sort of problems. And we looked at Oakland, California, and we realised there was a group there that was uh, taking some fairly interesting action uh, confronting identical issues of police brutality and police harassment, and that was the Black Panther Party of America. Mm-hmm. And so we we adopted some of their tactics and strategies, which ultimately resulted in us opening the doors of the first ever Aboriginal mm-hmm. Legal Service in Australia in Redfern, uh, which began to then provide some measure of legal protection uh, still not enough to this day. Mm. Um, and the incarceration rates are still as bad as they've ever been. And incarceration rates in a Western society are, are a good indication of, you know, mm. the, the economic, social and political status of those who are mm. imprisoned, you know. By adopting, uh, tactics, we, that was our, uh, younger generation's more direct way of dealing with, mm. uh, mm. problems that we saw. We, thought that the generation that had brought about the 1967 referendum, they were the older conservative generation. We mm. thought that um, what they were doing was moving too slow, so we wanted right. to speed things up. Yeah. At what stage did you uh, get together or meet up with people like Nadia Wheatley and Meredith Bergman and, uh, yeah. and that great anti-apartheid movement which <laughs> moved the world here um, that we'll never forget? I can't remember where I met them too, but I mean, one of the things I did when I moved to Sydney because I had a broader interest and I was interested in a whole range of things that were happening in the world at that time. I mean, you know, the late 1960s were a really interesting time to be young. You know, there were um, dramatic changes happening in the world and if you took notice and you, you read about and found out for yourself what was happening in other parts of the world, um, it was really exciting and, you know, that it was also the, it wasn't just the birth of the, the modern day, well, you know, these, the, the, the radical, uh, average black movement in Australia. There was also, you know, parallel events like the, the emerging, um, uh, women's, uh, liberation movement mm-hmm. of the time, the gay liberation movement, you know, the anti-Vietnam war. Uh, actions that were happening at the time. Mm. In 1971, the big Springbok tour of Australia by the, by the Springboks from South Africa and the mm. anti-apartheid movement that grew out of that. So there were a lot of really exciting things happening around us. Yeah. And, uh, we were taking notice of that and we were forming, um, alliances and relationships with, you know, the likes, uh, likes of other young radicals like us, white mm. radicals, only white radicals like mm. Meredith and, you know, uh, Dennis yeah. Freeney and, and Bobby Pringle and, you know, Joey Owens from the Builders Labourers. And <laughs> these were exciting times. Just on those times, I mean, one of the things, one of my areas of interest is, is it was around that time that, that your generation started to adopt the Western art forms that had been imported. So, you know, we suddenly had bands like No Fixed Address and Us Mob. Mm. You were part of Basically Black at the Nimrod Theatre. Uh, Kevin Gilbert had written Cherry Pickers. What's your reflection now looking back on that that acculturation process? Well, um, in my case, if anyone looks carefully at the scripts of Basically Black, which was the forerunner of all of them other mob you've mentioned, 
Um, this out of that came the first ever all Aboriginal television show. That one episode they were supposed to make a series, but the ABC got so scared by the stuff we did in the first one they they forgot all about it. <laughs> but um, in my case, my my appreciation of uh, you know I always say to young Aboriginal activists these days. The most important attribute one needs is a healthy sense of the absurd. And I got mine when I used to, 10 years old, late at night, tune in on Sydney radio somewhere and pick up the Goon Show. And I loved Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers and Harry Seekham and what they did. And they gave me, they began me on the path of appreciating satire as a, and later on when I became a political activist, I realised that satire, uh, and ridicule are some of the best weapons, you know, <laughs> you got if you got nothing else. If you're really powerless in, in society, one of the ways of making society sit up and take notice is make them laugh at themselves, you know. Mm. And, you know, uh, that's, and so basically black, um, if, if you compare basically black in on ABC TV in 1973, and some of the more recent black comedy, I think the uh, that's been on Australian, you know, Australian black comedy. I think that um, uh, the current crop just haven't got the same sense sense of uh, political satire that we had, you know. For me, it was such a tectonic shift that we we finally had the opportunity to hear. Indigenous stories being told by Indigenous artists. Not a white fella's version of it, but an actual black fella's version of what life was like. And that was confronting in the best possible way, and it was artistic, and it was, I, I found it incredibly revealing and powerful. Mind you, Lex, um, there continued for some time into the 70s and 80s a, pro- a propensity on the part of that prominent mob of Australia, crop of Australian filmmakers that came out of that new wave, the Noises and the Peter Weirs and the Fred Skepsis, it seemed to me at the time that every emerging young promising uh, Australian filmmaker felt the need to tell, to be the ones to tell their version of an Aboriginal story. Mm-hmm. And almost in every instance they buggered it up. Well, that's what I'm saying. So to finally have have the process being told from an Indigenous point of view. Yes, that was important. For the Indigenous voice to get through uh, was really important. And I think that uh, some of the stuff we did with basically Blackens and even, the, even before us, uh, people like Bindi Williams, Bindi Williams who was in Basically Black, he in fact was already a big TV star as the star... You know, the, the kid, the Aboriginal kid with the giant smile in, um, Wubinda, Animal Doctor. You know, so Bindi was already, um, uh, and, and Bindi being the youngest in our crew when we did Basically Black was, was naturally resentful that some of us older, completely inexperienced people like me, uh, were being, a, a, you know, applauded more than he who was the, you know, him and Bob Mazza were the only real professionals in the crew. Yeah, wow. Now, nowadays, um, well, several people have sung the praises of your website. Do you want to tell us about your Koori website? I got taught 
when I was a young activist, about 17 years old, I got involved with the arse end of the 1967 referendum campaign. And there was a media genius in that, the first Aboriginal professional journalist, a man called John Newfong. You know, I I call him the black Oscar Wilde. He was uh, very much a Oscar Wilde character with an encyclopedic knowledge of media. And he impressed upon me the importance of um, of staying up with the latest in information technology. Back then it was an old Gestetner machine, you know, one of those... Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Rolex machines. Then, then the next advancement was the electronic, um, you know, uh, uh, Ronio machine. And then a fax machine and then all the way through telexes and all this. And I always remembered what Newfong said and I always made an attempt to keep up with the latest in information technology. And then one day I heard that they'd invented these things called computers. And I thought, I've got to know what these things are and what they do. So I bought an old Amiga or something, I think it was, um, and I took it to pieces and I put it back together. And then in the earliest days of the Internet, before there was an Internet, when there was just bulletin boards, I learned how to dial in and download technical manuals from these bulletin boards. And I taught myself computer programming, you know, at the age of about 50 or 40 or 50 or something, you know. And so... Once I'd done that, when I went, when I finally went to Melbourne Uni, uh, in addition to studying history, I did one subject in computer science every, every semester. And as one of my, um, uh, uh, assignments in computer science one day, I created the earliest version of my website. Ah. And then, you know, so many years later, they invent these things called mobile, mobile phones. And then I had to go back and download all this other technical info and teach myself how to program mobile phone friendly version. And the <laughs> current version, GuruWeb, is my mobile phone friendly version. Oh, that's fantastic. Well done. Congratulations. And it's important to keep, I reckon it's important as you get older, us of our generation. Yeah. It's important to keep an active mind and keep your mind That's alert right. and keep doing things that well, you're into and that, you know, you're, you're constantly, you know, challenge you, challenging yourself, you know. But good on you. And it's good and it's fun. It can be fun on top of everything. We have, um, we have a saying on this program which says get connected and stay connected and that covers a whole array of things that we we can do but it's all important i i wish we could keep talking you're an absolute inspiration it's been a, a privilege to have you on the show mate and, and it's um, a privilege to meet you too patricia uh, yeah you too gary one re- I, i've just got one request from gary gary would you mind living forever I've been trying. <laughs> Good on you. But I don't know how successful I'm going to be from here on in. But I'm going to make a concerted effort. Love to talk to you, folks. Thanks, guys. And now it's time for Money Extra, where an expert on a particular finance topic gives us a brief life lesson on money. Hi, I'm Alice Mantle, author of Every Woman's Guide to Retirement, talking to you today about divorce on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. Did you know that the fastest growing group of divorcees is people over the age of 50? Grey divorce is on the rise in Australia and worldwide. Today, over a quarter of all divorce petitions are for those who have been married for 20 years or longer. 
representing a doubling of the divorce rate since 1990. There are probably many reasons for this increase in divorces amongst older people. A significant increase in life expectancy, divorce becoming more socially acceptable, more women joining the workforce and becoming financially independent, as well as women becoming more focused on self-fulfilment and personal happiness. Unfortunately, research shows that divorce after a long-term marriage can take a particularly serious financial and emotional toll on older women, even where it was an unhappy marriage. And even assuming you have had an amicable split and divided any property up fairly, it can still be difficult to start again. If you are facing a divorce in later life, you will need to set up all your own financial and legal arrangements in your own name, closing down any joint accounts. Details to uncover include banking, superannuation, health insurance, investments, social media accounts, donations to charities, credit cards, car registration, the electoral roll if you change your address, Services Australia and Centrelink. And don't forget to change your will and any executors or beneficiaries, as well as your power of attorney and guardianship documents. With all these obstacles, it is not surprising that sometimes older couples opt to stay together in a marriage on paper only, for example, by taking separate bedrooms in the family house or partitioning the house, so each has their own space. And now it's time for Stepping Out, where we speak with older people from around Australia, showcasing their communities and community radio stations, and telling us why you might want to visit sometime. Today, we're stepping out and we're visiting Brian Shearston, who's in very beautiful Devonport, Tasmania. Brian's a retired secondary school teacher of science, maths and an IT teacher for more than 42 years in New South Wales and Tasmania. For many years, Brian has been active in community radio as a technician and broadcaster and today Brian is the chairman of Coast FM in Devonport and also its chief technical officer and I2 guru. Brian produces Coast FM's breakfast program Monday to Friday, 6am to 9am, as well as Coastal Classic Sunday at 10am. There's no stopping him. Hello, Brian. How are you? Very good. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk today, Patricia. Thank you. And you know Lex is here too, don't you? Hi, Brian. How are you going? Good day, Lex. Lex Marinos and I are here. Going to ask you some questions like, why did you go to Devonport and how long have you been there? Well, we've been here since 2008 and uh, the main reason we moved is because my two daughters married two guys who were in the RAF fire service who then joined the TAS fire service and we were coming down anyway, but that sort of, yeah, and there was a major family crisis and I won't go into details of it, but uh, they need family support. So since I was getting close to retirement and we checked out Tasmania and as I look out the window of my Sprayton studio at the moment, it's spectacular. It's uh, 22 degrees here in Devonport at the moment, and it's a great place to be, and I've never looked back. It's one of the things that I wanted to do when I first thought about where I could go and to get out of, not knocking Sydney, but it was getting to a point where you probably realised that. Brian, just clarify for me, um, does Coast FM have a, uh, have a studio in Burnie? As well? It, it's main studios in a place called Wynyard, which is slightly west of Burnie. Wynyard, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I know it well, and I've, uh, I think I've done some stuff on Coast FM the, over the years, working um, in around Tasmania and northwestern Tasmania, and uh, Coast FM has always been a, bit, a great supporter of the arts projects I've been involved with. Yeah, well, it's been there for 31 years, 
it's been there a while, so it, uh, we celebrated it since, as I say, in anniversary last year. And we found some people who I'd never met. So it was an interesting place to find out that there are a lot of people who have gone on from there into major media and done really good jobs. And uh, helping support the arts people is another one of the issues. I've met some fantastic people doing this work and uh, I'd like to keep doing it. You know Scott Rankin? Scott Rankin, who was Tasmanian of the Year a couple of years ago? I have. He's based in... Uh, uh, Boat Harbour. Bo- yes, Boat Harbour. Beautiful. What a beautiful place. It is. The thing about Tasmania is it doesn't matter which area or which town you mention, we're all <laughs> we're in love with it all. And, and as a Sydney cider, and I like, I really like Sydney, but I know that it's, you know, <laughs> it's crowded and all the negatives, but the positives are still magic as far as I'm concerned. But there's no place I like going to more than going to Tasmania for a gig, a sp- to give a speech, to join up with veterans. It's just always a delight to be in Tassie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. It's, it's not too good for traffic reports. The, the other day we took the van out, we were from outside broadcast van, we took it around the town yesterday and the only thing we could report on was the um, number of seagulls in the, at the bike. <laughs> <laughs> and how many were there? Oh, there's quite a few actually. As long as they don't pop on the windscreen, you know, yeah, leave messages. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite fun because we're trying to we're trying to spot the one-legged one. That's been the hard part. Is Devonport like most of Australia? Is there an aging population there, Brian? There's a, interesting about that. There's a lot of people who come here and basically do retire, but there are so many things for people to do. Uh, I've done talks to service clubs, uh, provost clubs, and you, know, you hear of the stories that people have got. We've been to the retirement villages. We do a special program which basically. Um, takes requests from the retirement homes and plays them. To, and it, it's an amazing thing when you come across people. I pulled in next to a, a guy in the car park at the local shopping centre and the guy got out and he was a guy who drives the bus around with the, one of the, the, cancer, the cancer treatment buses and uh, he takes some oldies from one retirement village to another. He pulled up beside my vehicle, which is covered in KCFM stickers, and he said, I heard you. And, you know, like every... It's funny because he was talking the story about how he'd get in the back of the, you know, the guys in the back of the bus would talk and sing and carry on with this music that was playing from Coast FM. And it's always that important thing that you, you're helping people. Because the music that we play in that particular program varies from anything from Vera Lynn through to ACDC. And uh, <laughs> <I> still, <laughs> it still amazes me that you can see people in the retirement village in their wheelchair rocking to ACDC. <laughs> Listen, Brian, talking about the station... Uh, is it a ge- what sort of station is it? Is it a generalist station? Is there a bit of everything, or do you specialise in any one area? How would you describe the station? It, it it started as a Christian station, but they couldn't quite get the license for that, so they had to go to a general community station license. It covers the whole. If you can imagine Tasmania, you've got a triangle. We cover it from basically the northwest tip right through to the middle, and uh, yeah, it, it covers a fair area. And as I say, some seven council areas. And um, it basically is about seven or eight major retirement villages, but plus a lot of others. But it is a beautiful place, and it has a mixture of all sorts of people. But being a high school teacher, I've taught a lot of the younger people, and uh, but I've met some of the older people as well. And I think, on the whole, there's so many people here have got such a great idea of respect. They do park runs. They do all sorts of different activities, I know, because... Uh, <laughs> Some guy yesterday, we're, we're handing out tickets to a concert, and uh, this guy rocked up to us. 
oh, love the music, love the music. You like he couldn't get over it. And he, he meets me, I'm just an average black, I'm nothing special. And the guy goes, ah, oh, the first time I met somebody on radio. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> mm. so yeah, there you go. And the media goes out the door. But uh, it is a place good for the older people. I live just up the road from a new complex they put in for um, the bowls. Uh, the bowls green is not green, it's blue. And they have croquet, they have golf, they have, you know, I sit here and watch the people in the golf cart go backwards and forwards up and down the road. Um, we have in, back at the main studio at Winyard, we have a um, part of the production of the, um, you know, at the start of spring and summer, they do a big tulip festival, which is the tulip farm up where the, the main transmitter is. And they do a big production. Um, they even have a gopher race up and down the main street. It's one of our sports guys does the commentary of it. <laughs> what are the what are the popular shows on Coast FM? Are they music shows? Are they talk shows? You have a bit of everything. What? There, there's a bit of everything. You know, blues. You know, classics. Is the one I do. Um, the the one that really got me the other day. I've just taken over the six hours of the jukebox Saturday night program because the guy used to do it is unable to do it anymore. And because uh, of our streaming system, we have this lady who rings up from Brisbane. Hi, oh, Betty. How you going? <laughs> She loves it. She can't wait for it to start. We just last week put our first radio drama to air. We've recorded and produced it in the studios uh, at Winyard. Uh, we have the local theatre group coming in. It has got such a fantastic response. We want to be able to, you know, well, we've got four, three more in the can. One of them is just ready to be produced and put to air next that day. But we're trying to put our thing, and the big thing is the local footy. I must admit, I'm not a great sports person, but we cover the football from the Smithton Rife group of Devonport and beyond. And we have some amazing response to the people who, if you don't know, in the middle of winter down here in Tassie, people don't like to get out of their vehicles. So they're sitting around the football oval listening to Coast FM for the description while they're watching the football for the screen screen. What a good idea. <laughs> yeah. It is brilliant. Brian, I think of Devonport these days as a pretty big place. And the younger people, do they stay around Devonport once they leave school? Do they... Do they go to uni or do they? is it pretty easy to get work or do they go somewhere bigger? What happens to the younger folk? It's undergone a fair bit of a cultural change because what used to happen is, you know, my old man worked in the mines, I'll get a job, da-da-da. But a lot of the things now that there there is a fair movement of people, you know, of the younger ones going to the mainland to get, you know, specific university um, qualifications and that. But there's still a great uni here in Tassie. I know because I did a a degree just recently, and it, it, the people there, it's the kids that do find things that uh, move in. Like I had a lot to do because I used to be a vet teacher, so I used to have to go out to the town and find jobs for the kids to do work experience and stuff. And to me, yeah, you find the, the population of the people try and find the kids and, and find something for these kids to do so they stay in Tasmania. Uh, it, it's not easy, uh, especially if you've got you know, technology nuts like I had to deal with. Um, it, it was quite interesting to see how these kids who knew a lot, and you know, like I had a couple of particular students who used to, they're into internet security and all sorts of things that I, I got started on, but never really got into a great deep. But there, there are lots of kids there that I think have that potential, and you know, Tasmania is not always the best place for it, but it's certainly getting there. It's, it's growing dramatically over the, the whole the time I've been here for the last ten years or so. Brian, just clarify for us what a a vet teacher is, a VET teacher. Does that mean you work with animals? <laughs> no, vocational education training. They do things like hospitality and you know, 
all sorts of stuff. I worked at a local college where you know, I was only one of a team of about 20 or 30 teachers, you know, construction people, chippies, you know, sparkies, all those people. So it's sort of basically leaving the tape and still getting you know, high school certificate type training as well. But uh, yeah, no, they're, they're a great group of kids and you, know, you, you see what they can do, not just stare at screens 24-7, but the things they do with them is, is just amazing now. Yeah. But uh, and trying to get people to work with radio productions is another great area. And Brian, we know that community radio fulfills a lot of functions, uh, but it really comes to the fore during a time of crisis. And and for all Australians, we were deeply moved last year when there was a tragedy with the Jumping Castle, and it affected and cost the lives of some beautiful little kids. How did your station deal with that tragedy? I found it very difficult when I switched on the mic switch the day after it happened. It was a very emotional time. And uh, I think with people who deal with that, the first, you know, the, the police, like my two son, son-in-laws are both from the fire brigade and they usually attend lots of accidents and all that sort of thing. It's an emotional thing where I think nobody really can just get over it. They, it just takes a lot, lot of time where people get together, support each other. And the radio station, we just tried our best to try and keep it positive um, because it's not just accidents like that one, but it's, it's emotional things. Like we did a survey once and we got this lady from East Devonport who sent in a letter and she wrote on the bottom of the survey, I live for the radio station. I have nothing else in my life. Mm. And um, it, it, to me, if there's nothing else to switch the transmitters on for, it's that. And uh, I, I've never, 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 like I've been in situations like I used to be the manager at uh, Hawksby Radio and the studio's about powering Windsor at the moment. That's about to get flooded in. And uh, we, look, you treat everything with a different respect. We had the local SES guy up there. He used to give us um, two versions of the flood. One was a uh, wet-ass flood and the wet. <laughs> he had two different ways of explaining it. And it was, he was one of the local teachers as well, but. Everybody gets there and they have to treat it with a different different attack plan. And I found that with that issue of last year, it look, it was around the town, so you, you could tell. Um, and there are many times I've been through that situation myself back on the mainland and, and here, where it just filters right through the whole population. And no matter what you do, you know, you could be the police, the ambulance, or any of those people, but the other teachers, I felt sorry for the teachers that had to go back to work this you know, last month and how they'd actually handle that whole situation. Um, I know there's people who just get just so emotional because the kids are the things that are so important to the future of this place. And it, it just you can't help but get emotional about it, but it's how you actually go on from that and try and support them. As I mentioned about that lady at East Devonport, but they're, that's their only... I walked into a, um, a retirement village up at uh, Sheffield the other day, and we delivered a prize, you know, won something. Walked in there and I think it was about 30 minutes later after he told me about this big fish he used to catch this big salmon sitting on the wall of his his room. And he had no one to talk to all that much. And, you know, like I walked in and copped a bow barrel. And I was great. I love listening to people on how they go through life and explain what they've done, what the important things about their life have been. And it's just so amazing when you find out from that that there's so many people who have got a story to tell. And here in Tasmania, there are so many people who have got stories about mining, road building, uh, farming, you name it, it's brilliant. And yeah, I've, I've come across some lovely people in my time. You know, 10 or so years that I've been here, I've really got a 
positive outlook for Tasmania. Not only is it a beautiful place, but the people here are self-supporting. They go around and support anything. Like, I've, we've got two sessions for the radio station to go and support the Relay for Life in a place called Penguin, which is just the other side of Devonport, and another one in Circular Head at Smithton. And people go out there to support the cancer program. It, it's just amazing how much people go out of their way to donate time, money, to support other things that may not or sometimes do affect their own life. And really mm. incredible. Brian, there's no doubt that your community radio station, like so many, does such a great job in the community. I think because of you and, and your work, you've made the community even stronger and stronger. And um, it's been such a pleasure getting to know about the work that you do. And just tell me, oh, by the way, Lex and I reckon that if you need some people from Sydney to come down and recommend uh, visiting <laughs> Devonport, we'd be very happy to do so. But uh, you've been there almost 14 years now. Do you feel like a local yet? No. You don't get your qualifications for quite some time to come. Look, it's interesting when you go to explain to people like what you did on the mainland and all the rest of it. it it's difficult to say, oh, yeah, but you haven't done this. And it's getting used to what the names are. Like if you go for a country town and there's places called uh, Promised Land and mm. Nook, and yet you name it, there are the funniest names <laughs> of this place. And you think to yourself, right, yes, I think they're having a leg. Like our sports <laughs> announcer who's on air at the moment. He had a, a new person come in to read the news. There's this place called N-A-T-O-N-E. He pronounced it or got the lap. Yeah, it, it, the lady was going to pronounce it Nat One, but it's actually pronounced <laughs> Natone. And he, yeah. <laughs> just about the oh, we all make those mistakes. Hey, Brian, we've got to go, and we thank you yep. so very, very much and uh, look forward to seeing you soon or speaking, speaking with you soon. Yeah, thanks, Brian. You're on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life. In the 21st century, hearing us on Coast FM. Thank you very much, Lex and Patricia. You're a great group of people and I've loved you <laughs> your work for a long time. Ah. Good on you. Likewise. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Brian. Baby Boomer's Guide to Life is produced on the Gadigal and Wongal lands of the Eora Nation in association with the Older Women's Network. Baby Boomer's Guide is funded by the Extra Foundation which works to ensure that more Australians are confident making money decisions today and into the future. You can find out more by going to extra.org.au. That's E-C-S-T-R-A And don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, catch up on your favourite podcast app and online at babyboomersguide.com.au. Plus, you can join the conversation and have your say on our Baby Boomers Guide to Life Facebook page. Your Baby Boomers Guide to Life hosts are Senior Influencers of the Year, Patricia Little Paddy Amphlet and me, Big Lex Marinos. Get Get connected connected and stay stay connected. connected.